0: Hello, my name is Red Thunder Woman, Michelle Robinson, I use she and her pronouns, and today is January 27th, 2023. Welcome to Native Calgarian. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of uh, the Great Bear Lake tribe in Treaty 11. My name is Dekots Negotine Siku. My people wore rabbit skins, so it's been referred to as the land of the hare people. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene Nation is a visitor to this area of Kinchotiné Indahar in Satu Dene, meaning many big dog town, named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Malkinstas, as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act Imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. Through my father, I'm a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution, while having a Canadian Indian Act Imposed status card which is a colonial construct by Canadian policies meant to divide Indigenous people's inherent rights. Indigenous two-spirit or the Indigenous 2SLGBTQ community and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socioeconomic ladder because of the colonial trauma, imposed poverty, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. I share my journey as I walk down the Red Road after joining harmful colonial parties, spent money to be at a just to vote on incomplete policies that still allow incarceration, a denial of justice, a denial of health services, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide of Indigenous and Black peoples, I have worked to continue, reports to advocate for, and attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I think of all of this today as I hope we honor all the many Indigenous lives that are lost for the so-called country and in Canada, I hope you see your role in reconciliation and as a treaty partner. Pride Month should never be one month as it is important to understand the straight agenda and gendered violence was and is forced on the creating a safer space for Indigenous role as treaty partners in a so-called time of reconciliation. It's important themselves with their acknowledgement of their ancestors' story of displacements, how you see your or other land displacements, so that how to pronounce your story of origin, one of those economic oppression or a role of community, my family, and of course, my Indigenous 101, because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken treaties and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. That's why settlers and those who call themselves native Calgarians or whatever town you might be from, show me that you have no Indigenous 101 understanding. Jesse Winti's book Unreconciled explains this perfectly as do many Indigenous authored books. Land Back is a movement that could save the planet from climate change created by colonialism, but that would be a part of understanding treaty partnership, meaningful reconciliation, and honoring global initiatives like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot, and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Satu Dene. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and Dene elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the post-U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gunai and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley, Chinnakee, and Bears Paw Nations of the Stony Nations, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. My patron account is Native NativeCalgarian, where you can pledge in support. Thank you for uh, previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening and watching and can afford to give, thank you. If you cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc@gmail.com, at gmail.com or where you can send in your comments, your questions. Also giving review helps whatever medium you're listening from. And I also have a YouTube channel. You can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. I'm so lucky today to have a friend that I actually met on Twitter. And uh, I believe he's uh, from uh from I wanted to say Brooklyn. So I'll let you introduce yourself in your way and we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, uh, thanks Michelle um, for having me here. Well, my name is uh, Justin Pierce, Baldwin Gerald. I started going by JPB when I started publishing articles because if you're gonna cite me, it's gonna be my last name anyway. So I might as well just use it. Um, And also as a slight homage to WB Du Bois because I'm trying to cover, I'm not on his level, but I'm trying to cover similar ground in terms of challenging things, but that's kind of presumptuous to say that. Where am I from? I mean, uh, I live in what people know as Queens. It's obviously unceded Lenape territory, but uh, I also grew up in Brooklyn, and I grew up in and around what, you know, is easiest to refer to as New York City, I have lived in other places, but ultimately, it's this city that I'm connected to. Um, I I've got I did some ancestry research recently and um, public record stuff, not like uh, the websites. And um, I, I'm mostly black. I knew that, but uh, I'm also like one sixteenth Irish, like a great great grandfather. Um, who owned a pub and I was like come on dude you can't just be the stereotype but <laughs> but uh and then I'm also uh one eighth Cherokee right ah. so I mean it's one of those things there's a lot of Black people are told that they have Indigenous ancestry, and we just why would I question what people tell me and then you grow up and you're like, oh no, they're just saying that. So I both assumed that it wasn't true, and then I did the research, and it is true. Now I don't have enough information to really, you know, claim anything beyond that. Uh, but the point is, despite what has happened in the last 150 years, where uh, Irish immigrants and Irish Americans, you know, joined the police and certainly helped to enforce anti-blackness and other things, in the broad scheme of history, the Irish and the indigenous and black people are obviously all different oppressed groups, right? And of course we can participate in the oppression of each other, but just in general. So I think that although I don't know anything about my Irish ancestry and I don't know very much about my native ancestry, um, I guess it's sort of one of those things where before I even existed, I was being pushed into trying to challenge these things. And it took me, I would say several decades to get to the point where I could do so effectively, but here I am now
0: wow you know uh we should probably mention there's two significant significant uh uh topics today today is the international day of the holocaust because um that's kind of a a big deal uh six million uh jewish people lgbtq2 plus folks with disabilities like these are folks that were persecuted and murdered for no other reason than hate um and then and one other thing that I was going to say that my understanding is that there's a video that's coming out tonight that um, is going to show a brutal murder of a Black man in the States and all of the like local authorities in that are, are getting ready for big protests. And they said it says brutal, if not worse than Rodney King. And that's really upsetting. So, um, you know, that who knows what tomorrow will look like? <laughs> So yeah those are two things i wanted to bring up what is that like right now for you
1: well i don't even watch the videos anymore honestly
0: that's fair i don't want to watch that video i just know it's coming out and oh I- yeah yeah i'm aware
1: yeah. too i yeah. i just like i don't i've never even watched the whole george floyd video what do i need to see it for um totally i i know what happened you know what? what why Add extra trauma to my day. Um, I've done a lot of things, and I think people in the groups that we're in should take note of this, is that it didn't happen for a really traumatic reason, what I'm about to say. Um, It happened because I was annoyed, but it actually ends up helping me from traumatic things. Because at some point, I believe it was in late 2020, I was scrolling, and I was really tired of the election denial stuff. Mm. right like the people saying that you know stop yeah. the count and all that stuff and it's just like I was just annoyed like it, it wasn't like scaring me I was just like I don't want to see this anymore sure. and I realized that there was no way to block all of it because not, it's not one word it's several words like you can't like you can block words but you can't block everyone from talking about it and I said I'm not gonna look at this feed like I just don't even look at the feed some days sure so like when Certain things happen. I just don't even look at the feed. The only thing I do is read my messages and my mentions, you know, Um, and so on a day like or tonight um, and tomorrow, presumably like I am going to do what I can to avoid uh, going just scrolling because that's how you end up with it. And apparently it's much worse on like a TikTok where there's a lot of suggestions. The video ends and they, they send you to the next video, which is part of the reason why I don't go on there because like, no, no, I want to control what I'm looking at. It's yep. it's You get the same thing on YouTube, but the video doesn't always play. Like you watch something and you, it suggests something, but you could you could not watch it. Whereas on TikTok, it's just like, go, you better go.
0: Yes, um, I, hashtag comedy is one of those things I really look for or uh, dogs of TikTok or dogs of Twitter because- yeah, same thing. Pets of Twitter. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's, yeah, just that's my energy. Safe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so it, it's wonderful having you on today. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your background. And uh, I know you also have a book. And as you know, I'm a nerd about books, love books. And I, I definitely think... Um, with next month being uh, Black History Month, it's really important that people really expand their ideas of what, what they're looking for in, in literature. I mean, there's so many great books out there. And for some people actually doing the work, they want more books. And I wanted to d- really have you on for that, but also talk about some of the work that you do.
1: So the book is called Antisocial Language Teaching, English and the Pervasive Pathology of Whiteness. Um, and that is a very academic title, um, but it's not nearly as intimidating a read as you might think from the title, because the I wanted it to be something people could really consume. Yeah, I think that it's not an accident that most academic literature is not written for people to understand. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't just happen. In fact, When I was in my doctoral studies early on, they were telling me that like you, they weren't telling me, but the journals were telling me that, um, you know, in order to get published, you got to write this way or that way or whatever. And they're not necessarily wrong in the sense that that's what those journals are looking for. But I said, well, maybe I don't have to be in those journals. Sure. You know, I sought out journals that would be receptive, not to my arguments, because most journals will publish different types of arguments. They really care more about form and data and so forth, which is its own problem. But um, so I decided, okay, I'm going to look for journals that will be more open to sort of challenging both both um, results and form Um, because results, I think are kind of a dime a dozen, depending on what you're looking for. But the form I think is really, really important, you know, ways that, whether that means language in terms of literally which language it is, which like I own, only only written in English, but like places should be more open to other forms of communicating, but also language in terms of what words are being chosen. Sure. Right. When I say that the language is important, I don't just mean named languages, right? Or even colonial languages. I just mean literally what words are you choosing to use? You know, um, because if there's an audience that I'm targeting for my book, uh, it was it came from the origin of, you know, my first couple of articles came out in journals in 2020, and uh, I got a higher profile within the sort of language academic world. And I, uh, so the publisher approached me, like, I didn't even go looking for a publisher. They just came and said, do you want, we would like to publish your work. And I was like, okay. Uh, (laughs) So so then I said, oh, now I got to write a book. Um, So I had to come up with an idea. And I had this unrelated idea. And I was like, I might as well use that. And they liked it, which was this. So the whole point of the book, though, is that language, teaching specifically English language teaching, but it's true of any colonial language. It's just that I happen to have been an English teacher. Um, stigmatizes people inherently. Yes, right. T- the teaching of a language is not bad, right? It, it, you know, if someone wants to learn a language, that in itself is not problematic. It's that, uh, especially with a colonial language, there's we know we know the history. And then, but people will say, well, that's the past, but they, even in the present day, even if they're not snatching people, they're, you know, they're still telling people that the way they communicate is wrong, yeah. right? And it's, and again, I'm not, and I want to be clear, I'm not just saying that someone who's choosing to study a language is being told that there's something wrong with them for being in the class. That's not what I mean. I mean, when they could attempt to communicate in English or another colonial language, they're being told that there's something wrong with them anyway,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Mm-hmm. It's an additional stigmatization like obviously anyone trying to learn a skill is going to be told they're a beginner at the beginning. That's not a language thing. That's just learning a new skill, but specifically in the teaching of the language and in the ideologies behind the language teaching, it is built to create hierarchies and create stigma and tell people that no, you know, the implications that no matter what you do, you're still going to be wrong. And so the book is an attempt to sort of show how these ideologies, although the book is about whiteness, it's not just about race, right? Show how these ideologies have harmed people in the past, how these ideologies are tied to both capitalism and colonialism and other isms. Uh, and also to show that we are very fond of diagnosing people as being, you know, unworthy and that this di- this. Sort of knee jerk diagnostic behavior we do uh, makes it impossible for people to, not impossible, but very difficult for people to flourish. So that's the whole general idea of the book. It's tied in with my dissertation research, although it's not strictly based on that. And the attempt is that at some point in my past, when I was an English language teacher, I was speaking to other English language teachers. And the someone who also went to my master's program was telling me about the four schools she was teaching at. And like, but not in like a fun way, not like she's choosing to teach, like she, she's like running from school to school to teach every day. Right. Um, and I'm just like, no, nope, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like I don't want to do that to myself. Uh, Cause I had done some adjuncting stuff, but like, I was like, this is not a sustainable career for me. I can't, I would be too stressed trying to do this. Sure. Um, and at some point maybe 10 or seven or some time ago when I was the English language teacher, I said, maybe it's an egotistical thing to say, but I said, I've got to save this field from itself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, know? actually, I'm, what you're saying is really resonating for me because um, being in politics, like there, there really is a very like model person that they're willing to put energy towards. Like I, I just um, had an issue with one of my Indigenous ca- um, candidates that the party was not willing to work at all in any capacity like it was just such a great example of whiteness and uh, classism all all the things and, um, you know, I I just really resonated to what you had to say about uh, really unpacking how you'll never be good enough in a in this white supremacy framework because no matter how many degrees you get, no matter how much uh, community activism work you do, no matter how much we talk about intergenerational trauma, it's not good enough when it comes to the actual institution of politics, so. The the book
1: um, in the prologue, so like the first page, explains some of what I said. I mean, there's a lot more detail in the book, obviously, but some of what I said about why I'm doing this, because I was someone who obviously my family is black, but I grew up attending majority white schools. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And it was I, I feel as though I had a sort of conditional acceptance. I don't mean literally acceptance in terms of being allowed to go to the school, but I mean, like society, you know, like inclusion. Right. Um. And it was very conditional. It took me a very long time to understand what the conditions were. I knew, I thought that everybody had sort of a conditional inclusion in the sense that it was like, if you act the right way, you'll be included, which is not good, but that in itself, act the right way and be included is not necessarily about race or whatever. They're like It will just be a group, right? I'm not saying it's good, but that's not necessarily an oppressive thing. However, only in retrospect, as an adult, when I look back at my adolescence, did I understand that I was only being embraced based on the parts of me that they were separating from Blackness,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that they were holding in contrast to Blackness, right? They accepted me, quote-unquote, when I did well on tests, you know, when I didn't disrupt anything, when I kept quiet, right? Um, And when I was quiet, and doing well on tests, which is the opposite of the stereotypes they have of Black people, then they left me alone. They didn't. So like, and then because, and and the thing is, I don't think I would have ever understood why I couldn't quite socially connect if I hadn't later understood that I had ADHD. Um, and the particular symptoms of it making it harder for me to connect with people, which is not, a, again, that's not a race thing. That's just a reality of being neurodivergent. But because I didn't have support in my school, mostly because, again, they saw me doing well on certain tests. So they're like, well, what do we need to help him for? Right? And I'm struggling. I'm like skipping class because I'm struggling and they just didn't see this aspect of it. Now, does that mean it would have been better to be diagnosed in the 90s? I don't know about that, but <laughs> yeah, uh, I didn't have any support in that way. I didn't tell my parents in this way that I was struggling and they didn't know I had ADHD either. Um, and, uh, you know, the, also the, the very narrow stereotype of ADHD and other things for, for ADHD, it's just like a, a little white boy bouncing in his chair, right? But it doesn't manifest that way for me. I don't have a lot of physical tics Right. There's nothing wrong with that, obviously, but that's just not how it is for me. Sure. You know, all of mine's really in my head. Like, and I don't mean in my head like fake. I mean in my head like just thoughts bouncing around constantly. I'm thinking about six things right now, and I'm just trying to focus on one of them. Um, and so because of that. I was, like I said, only conditionally accepted. And then later as I did a lot of therapy and did a lot of studies and research, I came to understand that there were some really stark reasons why I hadn't been accepted. And so now being able to look at my experience and the research and the world, From both an emic and edic perspective, which is to say, both an inside and outsider perspective, right? And I'm sure you can speak to this being both an insider and an outsider in some ways, right? Like, I felt it was important to write about a field to which I was an insider because I was a language teacher, but that I'm also an outsider because not only am I not a language teacher anymore, but also because I was Black and neurodivergent, I wasn't the ideal. I did okay in the field, but I realized um, you know, it needed to be said. And I think that one of the problems is that sometimes there are a lot of academics who are trying to challenge things like there are plenty, right? Especially academics of color, women, et cetera. Um, but because they are academics in the sense that their livelihood depends on this, they either can't quite push as hard as they need to because then they, maybe they don't get a job, sure. uh, or, people discredit them because people are say, people will tell anybody who's struggling and advocating for things for themselves, oh, you're just bitter because you can't work hard enough or whatever, whatever, right? It's messed up. I'm not saying that, but I know how people think about people who are advocating for things that would also benefit them they think that the people are being selfish so let me be clear when I write about language teaching it does not affect me because I am not a language teacher anymore (laughs) so like and when I say the things I say about academia I am not an academic by by that's not my job so if they want to be mad they can't kick me out of academia because I'm not in it so having this slightly different perspective means I can comment on it Then I can analyze it. But if they get mad, literally nothing's gonna happen to me. And I thought that that makes my vantage point interesting and potentially valuable people who are going to dismiss it, but they probably would have dismissed me
0: anyway. So. Right. Um, I don't want to undermine though, how hard it is. Um, so for folks who don't know, I recently learned this term called masking and masking is when you are neurodivergent, di- but you um, try to act so-called what's normal or what's expected societal's expectations of so-called normal, but then you're also white coding. So like, that's a lot.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things. So what's pretty funny um, about the uh the masking thing is that as I got I didn't get diagnosed until um let it's not last year anymore, because it's 2023. To twenty in 2021, right? Yeah. Um what had happened was I had a, a professional who was helping me with other things and we had sort of come to the conclusion that it was likely that I had it and that I had stopped seeing him for no particular like we just sort of had run its course There it wasn't much for him to help me with anymore and then I said to myself I guess I'll get an evaluation after my son is born because um, like when we decided that I should do it my son was about to be born and I said eh. I'll just wait a little bit. It's going to be an infant. I'll do it later. The son was born in February 2020. So nothing was going to happen after that. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that at the time, obviously. So then I didn't do it for a while. And then in 2021, my previous job, which I... I said previous, so I don't work there anymore. We were sort of transitioning into a hybrid thing because it had been fully at home for a year and a half. And then we were going to go in a couple of days a week. And I was really stressed and it wasn't the COVID of it. I'm not saying I don't care, but I knew there's not that many people in the office. I kept my mask on. I probably wouldn't be worried about that. Right. And I've never had any issues with that. I mean, whatever. But the point is, why am I so stressed about it? And I said, there were things that I hadn't even realized that I had been doing and... That's when I looked up more symptoms aside from what everyone knows about ADHD, the sensory issues, right? In the sense that I have trouble focusing when there's a lot of background noise. And then people think, oh, I need quiet. Not really, because I like, if I control what the background noise is, like if I'm listening to music, then I can focus. Sure. But that's because it's my choice, right? So basically, when people are having background conversations, I can't focus. And that's what made me realize that I really need to get this evaluated. So I got it evaluated, I got diagnosed. And, uh, as I came to understand it, when I started looking for my next job, because I was about to graduate, I said, I'm going mask off in this job, which is just a funny thing to say when masks are a thing we should be wearing. But like, not that kind of mask, you know what I'm (laughs) saying? (laughs) Um, But like I said, I was really, I know it's a risk because some places will be, you know, exclusionary about these sort of things. But I said to myself, If I can't mask anymore, and again, not that kind of mask, but (laughs) I can't do it anymore because I had been doing it for decades without knowing it, um, and then I didn't have to do it for a year and a half, and I said, I'm not going back. Obviously, I know that there are situations in which I need to just calm down, but like just generally speaking, if I'm really going to be my best self at work, and this could be other contexts, but I'm talking about work, I need to be masked off. And I've had a much better experience with my current job because I went into my interviews and I said this to them. Sure. And I said, maybe they'll say maybe they'll turn me down and I will have to wonder if me telling them was an issue. But on the other hand, if me telling them is an issue, it's not going to be the place for me to work. And you could go for school or relationships too, but I'm talking about work. Yeah. Um, so the masking thing is really, really exhausting. It's not always a uh conscious thing because as when I got evaluated, the evaluator said that I had developed a very effective, what she called compensation mechanisms mm-hmm. um which is, is a complicated way of saying asking uh yeah. but like uh the things that i had developed in order to keep it together basically so um,
0: i am gonna tell you i got covid at the start of covid and um I, i'm undiagnosed with uh, either autism or um, ADHD. And I have been encouraged multiple times in the past five years to go get tested and I have not done it. And I had a good friend of mine who was diagnosed with ADHD say, um, cause I experienced brain fog, brain fatigue, um, all, all the things from it. And uh, she said to me that when it happened to her, it was like your brain did a hard reboot and all of the masking and coping tools, mechanisms that we had learned was like erased. And I I am really struggling as a result of that, where I I feel like I I have to, um, I've been really focused on what is my authentic self, because I don't know if I've ever been allowed to be authentically myself ever in in the context of being a woman in the context of being uh indigenous right like you you start and then of course i i started yesterday going to uh start the process of seeing a therapist to just determine if this is indeed what i have or i don't because i just need to know at this point i just need to rule out or or whichever so I, I just i bring that up because um covid really has affected folks in that way that i didn't anticipate And when she said that so much stuff has clicked on in in me that I I was trying to understand why COVID was being so difficult on me <laughs> so yeah I'd, I really appreciate you breaking all that down because I think a lot of folks don't understand and there's so many intersectionalities when it comes to uh, folks with disabilities uh, seen and unseen and yet we don't Talk about it. We don't even talk about mental health in Calgary, Alberta in a positive, constructive way. Uh, so let alone blackness. Um, we have a real issue here with racism. Obviously, this is kind of like considered a cowboy town. So,
1: yeah, isn't Alberta like the Texas of Canada?
0: (laughs) yes, and not the Austin, Texas, like the Houston, (laughs) Texas, (laughs) not the little,
1: not the little dots of of safety, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, I went to Texas for work in July and I didn't really see anything ridiculous because I wasn't there for a day, but you know, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of those things because the stereotype or the archetype or whatever of ADHD, and it's similar for autism, um, is like I said, a particular type of white boy. Right. And again, boy, not man, this, the stereotype is a child. Yeah. Right. Um, and everyone inherently knows that it can't just be that, but that's still the image. Like if you said, like if I said, you know, beauty pageant, you would think of something in your head, like it would come up, right? And if someone says a a person with ADHD, they have an image, right? Me, you, we thought about this and it's a little bit different, but like, unless you have a person in your life or you've done the research, the first thing you're going to think with ADHD or autism is probably a white boy acting in a certain way. Yeah. Right. Autism and ADHD are different, but I mean, in the sense totally. that like with autism be you acting this way and ADHD acting that way. Yeah. And when you are not that, whether it's not the white part or not the boy part, uh, you know, it, it makes it harder for people to take you seriously. Yeah. Um, and you know, there. I'm sure people know the statistics on this and I don't care too much about what the percentage is. So I'm not going to quote numbers specifically, but some astronomical percentage of people with neurodivergence have mood disorders also. Um, and it happens, it's not just random, right? It happens sure. because it is really hard to mask and then go on with your day. Yes. Like it's draining. And what happened to me when, when I realized I needed the evaluation, I told you how I ended up deciding I need to do it now. But before that, in 2020, like I said, my second article came out and it came out the second, the last week of May in 2020, which obviously was the week with George Floyd and the Amy Cooper thing here in New York, right? So my article had nothing to do with that, but it happened to come out that week, right? And so everybody wanted to talk to me, which again, I could complain about it. And at the time it was annoying, but on the other hand, I wouldn't end up writing a book and I wouldn't end up doing certain things because of it. And I'm not saying good for the things that happened, but if I didn't have a bunch of annoying friends, then it wouldn't have happened. So you know what? Fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because everybody started sending me messages on Facebook like, Justin, can I just ask you a quick, like "Like, the like the, the funny thing is they were not asking me because I actually have expertise. They're asking me because I'm black. Yeah. It just ha- so happens that I also happen to have expertise in it. Yeah. Like, like you know what I'm saying? I had ex- they knew I had experience with it. Yeah. Which is not itself expertise. It is a type of expertise, but it's not like studying. I'm not saying studying is better, it's just different. Yeah. Um, but I also studied it. And so I said, you know what, maybe I can do something about this, right? And so I decided to teach a class. Um, but what happened is I was working the previous job, like I said, and we were being assigned busy work for some understandable reasons in the sense that the job that we did, we were um, consultants who taught classes to city government workers, right? And the classes were in a classroom in the office, right? And then they sent everybody home, so we knew the classes were going to be online. Problem is the city, and this is true of most cities, was not very fast in terms of sending all of their employees laptops so the people couldn't take a class if they don't have a computer, which means for the first several months of the lockdown like we couldn't teach a class like you could obviously teach a class on zoom or whatever but like they didn't have computers, (laughs) so we knew. We can't do our jobs right now. Like we could do stuff, but we can't teach the class. And so they kept giving us projects to do. And we all were just like, they're just giving us stuff to do, aren't they? Right? I don't necessarily have a problem with them doing that because like if they didn't care and they were just like, just do something, I'd be like, fine. But the problem is they were really, really intense about us doing the busy work because I think that they were worried that the city would stop funding them Mm -hmm. if we didn't produce something. Um, but like the city was too busy doing other stuff to worry about that. But my bosses were worried about this sort of thing. And I was at a point where I realized that like, this was an office where I had had to do a lot of masking, you know, like a lot, much more so than any other office I'd been in. I've always done some, but like at the job before that, I was a lot, much more myself. You know, this was a place where um, the people were much more all the ists, racist classes, whatever, all, all much more of that than they had been at other jobs. That doesn't mean the other jobs didn't have issues, <laughs> but they were much more like, I would just be like, what?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, and again, because for people, you understand, but for most people who don't understand, like people, especially in New York, unless it's some really angry person walking down the street, I'm not gonna get the N word thrown at me very often here right? It's happened in my life, but like that's not going to happen in the workplace. You're just going to get fired. You're just going to get fired, right? So like that's not the way that racism has manifested for me in a workplace. It's mostly little things like assumptions, little things like people not telling various left people apart, like little things like that, where like If you don't understand how this is a part of the larger racism system, then I look like I'm, you know, just on my own planet and I'm pointing out. So I had really for the first because I started working in 2017, been for the first three years just sort of swallowing it I had one friend in the on the team where we would be like this is messed up right this is messed up. But. I hadn't been able to be open about it. And finally in 2020, I, I, I tried to speak to my boss. And I'm like, "Yo, there's a bunch of stuff that's been happening here. And right? it's kind of messed up. And they just mostly ignored me. Um, and I realized that I didn't want that to be the case with, at my next position. Because like the masking, one of the main masking things for me, it was because I'm neurodivergent and therefore the way I behave is a little bit different, regardless of my race mm-hmm. and my identity. Like that part of me is simply different. My brain works differently. Mm-hmm. Um it was much harder for me to just swallow the stuff. And I had been swallowing it for peace of mind, because like, I don't, I'm like, I don't have the energy for this nonsense. Uh, but then I finally got to the point once I'd been sent home and I'm like, I'm out here giving talks about racism and I gotta go back to my job where racism is happening. And then I'm not gonna tell them about it. And I finally was like, mask off, like, we need to talk about this. Or they dismissed me. And then I was like, well, I need to leave this place. But I also knew I wasn't going to finish school for a year and a half. So I stayed for a while. But <laughs> well, I mean, there's the practical reason of like, what I knew, as a certain like, I tried to leave that job a few times, right. And, yeah. you know, the first couple of times, I didn't really get the offers I wanted, I got a couple of offers, but they were too low, whatever, whatever. And then, as I got after 2020, I realized, like, I want the next job to value the fact that I'm going to have a doctorate. You can't use that until you're about to finish though. Like you sure. can't say I am a doctoral student two years in. A lot of people are doctoral students. Like a lot of people don't finish and I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying it's a fact. So if you're hiring someone and you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm going to finish a doctorate eventually. Like, that doesn't mean anything, right? But when I finally got this job last spring, I was like a month from finishing. So they could reasonably believe I was going to finish. So I just sort of was like in 2021, I was like, I'm gonna wait it out until I get to the point where like, they can understand that I'm about to finish. And I didn't end up being a professor obviously, but it's still the job where they understand and respect my expertise and so forth, so.
0: Excellent, off. Well, um, I have some rapid fire questions. This is brand new for me in 2023. I usually just have like totally organic conversations. But I do want to ask people for like a year end wrap up, like things like, what are you reading?
1: Oh, what am I reading? So um, this might sound egotistical, but the most recent book I read was a academic book about the boundaries between disability studies and special education, um, because, because I wrote one of the chapters, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to read the other chapters, you know, um, 100%. The, the thing, so the funny thing about this book is that in 2020, again, I'm starting to blow up, bl- whatever blow up means in academic spaces, which is like, oh, 10 people rather than four people, but um, I was giving talks. You know, and it, especially because of everybody was at home around the world like I give a talk in Japan, I give a talk in whatever and I was doing that it was fun. Um, but, uh, at the same time, because back then I wasn't sure if I would or wouldn't be a professor, they tell you, look, man, just say yes to the projects, say yes to all the projects, you never know what will happen. And you know you want to get all the stuff on your CV so I said yes to everything. Mm-hmm. So that's before I even had the book. So one of the things that happened is that I ended up agreeing to write chapters in three different academic books, right? And let me tell you how slow academia is with the publishing, because all three of these agreements happened in the summer of 2020, and that book came out like this month. So like, (laughs) I was offered a book contract signed the book contract, wrote the book, and published the book between when I agreed to write this and when it came out. So like, because everybody else in academia is just so busy, and I'm busy too, but if I'm going to write something, I'm going to write it fast. Um, so this finally came out, and I'm the next project I want to work on is about, is, I'm, I'm leaning more into sort of entangling language and disability. It's not finalized yet, I going not say so much about it, but Um, so I read this one and there's a lot of really interesting chapters in there. Um, so I was happy to read that. I'm also reading a book now called Running While Black. I'm a runner. Um, but frankly, this is a problem I have with nonfiction in general is that the problem with getting a doctorate in a particular subject is that you spend all this time reading about your subject. So you always want to learn more about it. The problem is that there's two types of nonfiction books about like racism and related things, right? There's books that are academic, that are a bunch of chapters, like the one I just told you about. Those books either cost a million dollars or they're impossible to read or both. Yeah. Right?
0: $200 for something that's like a lot to absorb.
1: (laughs) Right. And
0: so, and so
1: I refuse. I only have this book because they sent it to me. But <laughs> uh, so there's that. And if you write a book, if you read a book that's sort of mass market about racism or whatever, they understandably have to spend the first 40, 50, 60, 70 pages walking white people through the existence of racism, right? And that's not the author's fault, right? The book's not gonna get published with the big time publisher because you can't just assume the way I can with my audience that like, you know, some basic. I still explain stuff at the beginning, but it's like four pages. I'm like, here you go. Let's continue. Um, Like I try very hard not to revel in, you know, racialized trauma. Like it's going to have to come up to make the point. Like I'm going to mention it because I can't just like pretend that it didn't happen. But like, I don't like to luxuriate in the trauma like I don't think writers are trying to do that I think what's happening is whether it's the writers or their editors and I can't say who's doing what they're probably told look no one's gonna pay attention unless you bring the trauma up
0: yeah no we gotta open ourselves up all trauma porn is just like Well, consuming from for white people is just this constant racial trauma porn and it sucks because it's like, you know, that's great. You haven't had to experience the fucking trauma, but I don't need to talk about it. And I just came back from Alberta government um, roundtable about anti-racism. And I'm like, I'm not sharing more trauma. I'm just, I'm going to give you the list of the reports that you continually forget about that have all of the traumas in them. So I don't need to name my trauma. So I get the whole trauma porn thing.
1: Yeah, I try, and I say this in the book pretty early. I say, say, it's going to have to come up occasionally, just because if I'm making a point about the connection between these two things, it's there, right? Yeah. But like... It, it it's used very sparingly and with intention, is my yeah. point. Yeah. You know. Uh, like you can't mention eugenics and be like, let's not talk about trauma. Like it's gonna be it's gonna be in there, yeah. right? You yeah. know, but uh, you don't have to go into like detail about what happened and so forth. It's like y- the internet exists, you know, you can go find out if you want to, <laughs> right? Um and my thought is also if any because the audiences I'm writing for. And I say this a lot and I was actually on a different podcast this morning um, saying this very same thing, which is like if there's three groups of people, which is there's people who are committed to challenging this stuff who may or may not have seen the particular connections I'm making. That's part of my audience, right? Because like, I know a lot of people who generally agree with me, but haven't necessarily seen the lines drawn from disability to race to language or whatever in the particular way that I'm doing it, right? That's part of my audience. And then there's a big swath of the audience who are, I believe, people who don't necessarily mean people harm, right? They're just going on with their day living in the status quo, right? And when I say people, I mostly mean white people, but not just. Um, and they are people who, whatever the status quo is, they'll just put their heads down and do it. Yeah. Right. So if we were to change the status quo into what we want, they'd go along with it.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Or, or they'll go along with whatever's going on now. And again, I'm not trying to shame people who are like, for example, they're really struggling financially and they just have to get their job. Like I'm not talking to them. Like they can read it if they want, but I'm not trying to be like, you better fight with me. something right because I know I'm in a position at least financially where I don't have to struggle from day to day right you know yeah so I'm not trying to lecture those people and then there's a small group of people who make a lot of noise and who are completely you know trying to cause everything they're a big problem I guess but they're actually there's not as many of them as there are the big group of people in the middle who just are going along to get along. So my aim is usually for that big group of people in the middle who are going along to get along to try to convince them to do things differently and work with us Mm -hmm. because I there's no, I'm not trying to fight the people who are actually going to use slurs against me. Like, what's the point? I don't need that in my life. You know, I'm just trying to gradually grow a bigger coalition to challenge these things. But this somehow this started with you asking me about what I'm reading. And here is, here I am talking about this entirely different thing, but uh, yeah.
0: That's okay. Sometimes that's exactly what we're meant to do. Um, I've, I'm a big believer in reading. I it, I remember seeing a stat once of how few people actually read a book after they've done their uh, education. And I was just shocked by it. And I was like, how is like, a, you know, these indigos and, and these these bookstores even sustainable then if that if that is true. But I, I think that is not true. I think people are reading. Sometimes people are just embarrassed to tell you, yeah, the latest uh, romance novel is XYZ. <laughs> I don't know, but well, thank you so much for, for telling us all of that. What are What is your book? How do we get a hold of it? And um, I'm going to obviously put your Twitter account on there, but is there other things that you want me to promote, especially your podcast?
1: Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is all my things are linked in all the same places, right? So like, frankly, the best link is probably my website, which is jpbgerald.com, because the way I set it up now is that if you go to it, the opening page is the link to my book. Nice. So. So you can just go to JPB Jail because you'll also get links through one of the tabs to my podcast and you'll also get links. And for people listening, we're going to continue this conversation on my podcast after this. So yes. if you want to continue to hear more of us talk and I suppose that time I'll be the one asking the questions, uh, you can go there and listen to it. Mine will be up about a week after hers. So uh, you, you're going to have to wait with suspense. Woo! That's what's going on. But yeah, generally speaking, my Twitter and my Instagram, everything is at JPB Gerald, um, because I guess that's what branding is. And uh the the, the website is jpbgerald.com, And the book is it's like I said, it's called Antisocial Language Teaching, English and the Pervasive Pathology of Whiteness. If you search that, it'll show up. But I I recommend to you, not even really for corporate reasons, that you buy it from the bookseller it's from the publisher itself. I'm not trying to make a point about Jeff Bezos, like that's not my point it's also just like this is an academic book and it just takes a long time for books to come through amazon right like we can have an argument about jeff bezos all we want this is a pretty small publisher but on the other hand they're owned by a larger one so it's like i'm not we're not like saving the world in terms of fighting capitalism by buying my book through this way it's just like you're not going to get the book for a long time if you go through amazon
0: yeah that is so fair thank you so much and thanks for for sharing like what you do and how you feel and your passion about all these topics i appreciate it because i think it's really important that people just hear other points of view my god we're so like in, in Calgary, Alberta, we're so insular with like, you know, these three people that that's, those are the only people who can do commentary around here and, as you know, there's almost no Indigenous representation whatsoever anywhere. So like something like Rutherford Falls, which is a comedy, ghost comedy. You know, these are it's, it's so sad. This is like the best we got is uh, you know for any type of indigenous inclusion. So I'm hoping that will that will change as well. But I think it's really important that we we bring in uh, folks with disabilities, neurodivergency, um, and and then the blackness. I think <laughs> what a great book. I can't wait to read it because I need perspective sometimes too. So I appreciate it. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions and cultural safety training and cultural first aid and all of them to create a safer space for indigenous people, people of color, those with disabilities and to us LGBTQ to speak. Thank you to authors Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, and Alicia Fritkin of heretohelp.bc.ca. They have a whole section on what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. Their work and those cultural action tools exist, so please support Indigenous work like that as part of the reconciliation and settler understandings. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat them here. Internalized racism and lateral violence is another form of violence that marginalized groups face by the structure of racism. Donna Bevins has a great uh, resource file under RacialEquityTools.org uh, and a whole section on what is internalized racism. Do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by American Friends Service Committee so this group here, so AFSC.org, they have a whole uh, section on what you do when you see somebody, let's say a Muslim woman being accosted on the sea train here in Calgary, something like that. Um, I know I experience it all the time, and none of you folks ever step up. So, like the here you go. Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas and reports, commissions, and public hearings, so it can be regularly disregarded no more. Honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized with their budget of gender equity plus, um, if they're cutting violence prevention programs, services, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts people demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports on child welfare reform, uh, violence prevention, and now we have 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls in Two-Spirit. Provincially in Alberta, the Kenny government created 113 pathways to justice. So all the blue voters should be holding your blue MLAs to account on it. Follow the Premier's Council on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls' uh, work. Municipally, we have the White Goose Flying Report. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational, health, and uh, justice institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Men change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, and intersectionality, they have zero business running. It should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, and sport clubs. Google articles on how non-Indigenous Canadians can become allies. Uh, Stephanie Harp and I had a, an emergency podcast over the holidays in the hopes we can reach out to our allies to write more on the crisis that we're facing. Uh, we also encourage you go to aboriginalalert.ca for folks that are missing and murdered. Uh, they, need ampli- they need to be amplified. The Missing Children's Society of Canada has an app that you can also download and demand urgent action to protect the lives of indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit and gender diverse people experiencing homelessness. That's at womenhomelessness.ca. Uh, I wrote I really wish more people were writing that's for sure Uh, we're also having a drug poisoning crisis right now so if you know someone who's using substances encourage them not to use alone. If they are using alone there's a national overdose response service at 888-688-NORS and there's two um, apps that you can download the brave and the doors app. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's open uh, 24-7, but you can also go to their website, hopeforwellness.ca, and they have a text option as well. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. If you are non-Indigenous, there are Distress Centre lines in your area, usually a uh, functioning 211, or you can call 833-456-4566. Uh, you can also go to CrisisServiceCanada.ca. And if you are a Sixty Scoop in Alberta, you can go to SSISA.ca and learn more about the supports in your area. Uh, for folks who identify as 2 LGBTQ 2 I uh, want to direct you to lifevoice.ca, uh, the Trans Lifeline is 877-330-6366, and the Trevor Project, thank you for the LGBTQ2 plus youth, 866 uh, 866- Mm 844-7386. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation faces it. This is self-care, how I take my power back. That's why I started the podcast to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, leadership shaming, gaslighting questions as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs. Even if they know nothing about Indigenous people, colonialism, the constant surveillance of our people, protests, vigils, and our rights, I and many others share daily information on microaggressions, so it's just unacceptable anymore. Learn about being trauma-informed. Folks like me are dealing with internalized racism, gatekeeping, folks who live off the status quo. So there's a lot of barriers for folks like me. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality. Um, Masi Cho to my ancestors, to my granny, to my mama, what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots. Oh my God, sidebar. On TikTok, I said something about this. I had no idea. So many people were so ignorant that they didn't know that, um, Austrians speak a different dialect of German. Anyway, Just total sidebar. (laughs) It is through her, I am a second generation, proud Calgarian. Thank you to my husband, Darcy, big Buffalo rock man, um, for producing and editing the show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, the father of our child, and my support down the journey of the red road, he has witnessed decades of sexism and racism. And to our child Thunderpipe Necklace Woman, we are blessed to learn from you daily and we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be better and stronger. And I hope my family will be proud in the future of us discussing these present-day issues. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening and watching and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or your questions. I also have a YouTube channel. You can go and subscribe. And for my birthday, I put out, I want to go to Ottawa for May 4th. So if you'd like to do a one-time donation, you can um, donate there as well. And I want to give side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradition. My beautiful cousin responded, or yet be in my dish. Thank you so much, folks, for listening.